KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, how climate change will transform the coming face-off between the United States and China. We'll speak with historian Alfred McCoy. He says China will be the world's number one military and economic power by 2030, but Chinese domination will last for only 20 years because rising sea levels and rising temperatures will bring crisis and disaster to China's economy and, of course, also to ours. Also, mutual aid and racial justice during the year of COVID. We'll speak with Christina Wong about how, in the darkest days of the pandemic, she started the anti-sewing squad to make masks for the most vulnerable communities, and how she became, in her words, a sweatshop overlord. First up, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Good to be here. Well, the odds that the Senate will pass Joe Biden's signature legislation by Christmas uh, seem to be getting worse by the hour. They can start up again after New Year's, but there's one big urgent problem, the enhanced child tax credit that Democrats uh, passed as part of the American Rescue Plan is going to expire at the end of the year. This is the program that pays monthly aid checks, sends checks to 35 million families with young children. And uh, if this expires, that means that shortly after Christmas, in the midst of rising prices, just about every American household with young children will see its monthly income abruptly fall. Of course, this would be politically bad for any ruling party, and it certainly will increase child poverty. Some pundits are saying, they should pass this one separately. They should split it off from Build Back Better. This is an urgent thing, uh, and they should do it, you know, tomorrow. Well, it has one major opponent within Democratic ranks in the Senate. No surprise, it's Joe Manchin, who says uh, he doesn't want to, you know, apparently told Biden over the last two days that he he, he won't go for it, that if, if they do it, it's, it's got to be, you know, funded at $1.4 trillion for the full decade, and he won't spend uh, more than $1.75 trillion over the decade, which essentially would wipe out everything else in, uh, in Build Back Better. So the mansion problem only grows more acute and uh, stands athwart the, the Build Back Better bill. Um, and so that is a real, uh, a real problem. You know, unless you belong to, you know, the League for Child Poverty, um, you know, which is a group that Manchin, I guess, has founded and is, uh, uh, you know, all completely behind his obstinance. Well, Joe Manchin says different things on different days, you may have noticed. A couple of days ago, he said he was not ruling out a deal before Christmas. He said, quote, we're still talking about different iterations. That's all. This was on CNN. What, uh, what, are, what does different iterations mean? What's new as we speak on Wednesday afternoon is that the White House has pretty much said Biden isn't willing to go for, uh, you know, the current plan. Uh, he has in the past talked about the uh, work credits. He says he doesn't like sending checks directly to the American people, uh, which presumably means he might want to repeal Social Security. And that he uh, doesn't like the fact that the Build Back Better bill 
fund some programs in order to get, get it down to the level that he would support. It only funds some programs for a few years or ha- half a decade or what have you. And, and, and so in, in that sense, uh, it's, it's, it's not really an honest statement of, uh, of what's there. Of course, in order to extend such programs, Congress would have to vote again, which doesn't strike me as a deceptive acknowledgement that that's simply uh, the way things work. Well, some uh, middle-of-the-road pundits are suggesting, in view of these changes, political changes, that it's time to either split up, build back better, the Democrats need to focus on a couple of major programs that they can pass and that will have a major effect, and obviously fighting child poverty is one of them, maybe the number one. What's what? What do you think? What is the progressive progressives in the Senate going to say about splitting this up and only doing a few? Uh, that's not entirely clear yet. Uh, it's not just middle of the roaders who have suggested that. I know some progressives who have suggested that at various times, including my own colleague David Dayan. Uh, better to do uh, something fully and well than to introduce a number of programs whose continued survival is not guaranteed. If you broke off the child tax credit and put it before the the Senate uh, in which the filibuster uh, would still be in effect, you'd have to win 10 Republicans over, which seems to put it gently like a stretch. Uh, (laughs) Republicans seem more devoted to defeating anything that Biden supports uh, than uh, using any criteria that relate to the actual content of the legislation. You know, I say almost every week, Joe Biden knows Joe Manchin a lot better than you and I do. He's worked with him for decades in the Senate. It seems unlikely that Joe Manchin's goal is to destroy Biden's presidency and the Democrats for the next decade. So that still makes it seem like maybe Biden, you know, will come up with something that will get Joe Manchin to change his mind yet again in the next week or two or whatever. That's what Gramsci called optimism of the will. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, But he also balanced it with pessimism of the mind. And uh, I think you are a uh, optimism of the will glass half full guy uh, in uh, in saying that. I, I wish I could be. I don't think I'm there yet. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle, which has become a regular feature of this broadcast. We're still thinking about that Starbucks in Buffalo that won union certification in an NLRB election. In the prospect, you expressed some doubts about the significance of this victory. You pointed out that this is just one Starbucks and there's something like 15,000 of them and that it's very hard for unions to organize small fast food places. These are not giant GM assembly plants in Flint. Um, but then your colleague Robert Kuttner took to the pages of the prospect to to disagree, and I thought it might be worthwhile to uh, revisit this topic. He predicts that at least 100 Starbucks will be unionized by this time next year. Would you like to summarize the optimistic case uh, here? Well, the optimistic case that my, my colleague and friend Bob made is that uh, Starbucks has a kind of somewhat upscale clientele that uh, among whom there are many socially conscious people who would, uh, you know, try to pressure the company, you know, as well as whatever 
pro-union sentiment uh, sweeps uh, among the baristas across the country. And we should point out that yesterday, uh, two Starbucks outlets in Boston uh, said they were, the workers said they want to unionize. So, you know, and there's one in Arizona. So, you know, we'll see where this goes. But it's not at all guaranteed that Starbucks will actually negotiate in good faith with the baristas in Buffalo or or anywhere else. Most American employers don't, even as mo- just as most American employers don't say, okay, it's fine to unionize. I wrote another piece which put this let in me, a Let me just con- say there's one, one yeah. other argument here that's yeah. relevant, yeah. which is Starbucks, unlike most of these, unlike McDonald's or, or Subway, their stores are not franchises. They are owned and operated by a single corporation, the Starbucks Corporation. And that makes unionization, at least theoretically, hypothetically, a lot more possible than having to organize against separate owners of every one of the 15,000 stores. Well, actually, of the 15,000, Starbucks owns 9,000, 6,000 are indeed franchised. And some of those are unionized, by the way. But I, I want to make one more point on this, because in another piece I wrote, I noted following Bob's suggestion of uh, consumer mobilization that, you know, we have not solved the equation of how many unsold lattes due to consumer <laughs> political pressure, uh, you know, equals unionization. We don't know that. Uh, so it's an imponderable. But this article, which will appear on Thursday on the Prospect website, also said there were three big labor stories over the last week. The Starbucks got the most attention, understandably so. The second was the ongoing strike at Kellogg's, where the, comp- where the workers want to get rid of the uh, two-tier contracts. Uh, the company, in fact, initially tried to make even worse, under which newer hires would get lower pay, fewer benefits, and never be able to you know, move to the upper tier. Kellogg's is hanging is hanging tough to the extent that they said, well, we're going to hire a permanent replacement for the strikers, which uh, provoked uh, President Biden uh, to issue a statement saying you really shouldn't do that. There's a rally in Battle Creek, as serial consumers know, the home of <laughs> Kellogg's uh, on Friday that Bernie Sanders will uh, will address to talk to the strikers. So that was the number two story. The third story actually was the largest unionization in the country this year which kind of got ignored by the media, which was that 17,000 research assistants at the University of California were recognized uh, for having voted, you know, for the uh, United Auto Workers. So let me just introduce this a little bit. We, we have talked a couple of weeks ago about the huge victory at the University of California by the lecturers, of whom there are 6,500. They're represented by the AFT. They got a, a contract much better than any of us ever imagined they could by threatening a strike. Student researchers, there's a lot, there's almost three times as many, as you say, 17,000. Their organization is called University of California Student Researchers United. They're on all 10 campuses and at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, where they work on developing nuclear weapons and nuclear power. The vote to form a local with the United Auto Workers and to, to strike for recognition, the vote, I looked this up, 10,622 yes, 168 no. Right. And that was one of two factors that uh, uh, compelled the uni- UC president to recognize the union. The other was that uh, Democratic Congress member Katie Porter from Irvine 
uh, got together a, a, a letter to that president signed by 30 Democratic members of Congress from California saying, wow. in essence, God damn it, recognize the union. So, so the president, in fact, did that. Uh, but, you know, there's an interesting difference here between the 6,000 some odd uh, who affiliated with the AFT and the 17,000 some odd who affiliated with the UAW. UAW already has the teaching assistants and postdocs as well at the University of California. In fact, with this added 17,000, they have 44,000 members at the University of California, which makes it the fourth largest employer where the UAW has contracts, trailing only, of course, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler. Hmm. Also, they have representation in the TAs and grad students at the University of Washington, um, and they have gone into the private sector, which is harder. That's under, you got to call, do an NLRB election, uh, and have Columbia, which is now on strike, Harvard and NYU, among others. In fact, one quarter of UAW members are grad student, TAs, RAs, etc., 100,000 out of 400,000. And completely by coincidence, also last week, the UAW held an election among its rank and file members, which it was forced to do by federal prosecutors who have been putting UAW presidents in jail for essentially embezzling funds on the question of whether we want to, whether the union should select its leaders as it has since its formation and the way most unions do it through delegated conventions, or whether the rank and file should vote. And overwhelmingly, the members said the rank and file should vote. Now, I just bet you that grad students will tend to vote at a higher rate than auto workers and and other members, which means that the UAW is going to have somewhat different leadership going forward. And it's a union, the, the headline on this piece that will run Thursday, we're talking on Wednesday, is a union of auto workers and grad students. And there's an odd synergy here when we remember that it was the UAW that gave a bunch of scruffy students in 1962 the use of its uh, one of its facilities, Port Huron, uh, where they formed SDS and wrote the uh, Port Huron Statement. So um, almost 60 years after that, the UAW is back on campus in a, in a very different way. And uh, it, it's an interesting development. You know, in fact, most private sector unions at some point 20, 30 years ago, or even just 10 years ago, realized it was almost impossible to grow in the private sector due to the dysfunctionality of the National Labor Relations Act and the hostility of American employers. So lots of them turn to uh, unionizing public employees and state governments and local governments and on campuses. Uh, and so here you have here you have that. And of course, in the AFT, American Federation of Teachers or the NEA, they have plenty of university employees represented. But those are mammoth unions. AFT has almost two million members. The NEA has over three million members. So even if you have 100,000 grad students, it's not a big deal. But it is a big deal in the UAW, which has 400,000 members. Harold, it sounds like your glass is half full when it comes On to this the one. UAW. It is. Yes, yes. We in, in, in my house, there are many glasses, as someone <laughs> never said. In his house, there are many glasses. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs>
Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. How will global warming change the world's systems of power over the next 30 years? Alfred McCoy has been thinking about that. He argues that American global hegemony will end around 2030, replaced by China as world leader, but Chinese hegemony will last for only about 20 years, and that by 2050, Climate change will have brought environmental catastrophe with consequences that are almost unimaginable. Alfred McCoy is an award-winning historian who teaches at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. He's a regular contributor to The Nation and Tom Dispatch. His new book, just published, is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. Al McCoy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, you've taken on a big topic, drawing a political roadmap for the world's powers for basically the rest of the 21st century, especially for the United States and China. So let's turn away from today's headlines, the news this week, what the pundits foresee about the midterms next year. And let's start with charting America's long-term decline, something you've been working on for many years now. Where do you see the start of this process? In many ways, America's decline is self-inflicted. It's been something of a bipartisan project. Back in 2001, everybody in the foreign policy circles in Washington, D.C., Democrat and Republican, agreed that China should be admitted to the World Trade Organization The U.S. had such awesome military and economic power. We were the world's unchallenged, the world's sole superpower, and that we could admit China with 20% of all humanity into the World Trade Organization, and they would play nice by America's rules. Nothing would change. China would become a democratic nation eventually. They would convert to capitalism, and the American order would extend to incorporate China. Well, it didn't work out that way at all. Within 15 years, China's income from sales to the United States had increased fivefold to about $460 billion. Moreover, China's foreign exchange reserves had grown from a modest $200 billion to an unprecedented $4 trillion. And China took that money and began to build a modern military that is by now in many ways superior to U.S. military strength in a number of critical areas. And most importantly, they launched this massive project in 2013 at the peak of their their wealth with that $4 trillion accumulated, something called the Belt and Road Initiative to lay down an infrastructure of roads, rails, and gas pipelines across the 6,000-mile span of the vast Eurasian landmass and turn Europe, Asia, and ultimately Africa into a unified market. So while China was developing this unprecedented infrastructure for much of the world, what was the United States doing? We made another bipartisan decision that has doomed us, I think, to eclipse. The United States decided to invest its about $8 trillion by current calculations in fighting wars in the greater Middle East. 
the logic among the Republican neoconservatives that we would install the United States, insert the United States in the Middle East in this massive bastion in the green zone in Baghdad, and we would secure oil for all time. And we were doing this just at the time that oil was joining cordwood and coal in the dustbin of history. It was one of the world's greatest strategic miscalculations. So China spent its trillions in becoming the workshop of the world and laying down a grid of infrastructure to control Eurasia. And we wound up with long-term veterans benefits and humiliating defeats in Afghanistan and in Iraq. So the United States military is no longer fighting wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but you still think the United States is what you say is almost certain to retreat from the world in the next two decades. Why do you think that is? Well, first of all, it's not an entirely voluntary retreat. But one of the, the, the great untold stories of American power was for the first half of the 20th century, we contested with Japan for control of the Pacific. And at the end of World War II, we were the masters of the Pacific. Now China, for the first time, is challenging us for control of the Pacific. And they're pushing us, their Navy and their missile defense is pushing us beyond what they call the first island chain from Japan down to Taiwan. They want to push us all the way back to the midpoint in the Pacific. So they are, they are eclipsing our military power. Moreover, um, there's a number of forces. Uh, one, we're an aging society. By 2034, the cohort of retirees is going to be larger than the cohort of youth. By 2049, the United States government is going to be spending 50% of, its, of, of the federal budget in supporting seniors. So, uh, moreover, as climate change gathers, all right, the, the American coast, the American continent is going to be battered with disasters that are going to force us to draw inward. Uh, and it's a combination of a geopolitical shift in the competition with China and the long to medium term climate change that is going to pull the United States back to the Western Hemisphere. So you think China will supplant the United States as the most powerful global economic and military power. When do you think that's going to happen and why? Back in 2012, the U.S. National Intelligence Council, which is our supreme analytic body among the 16 or 17 groups in the intelligence community, they said that by 2030, China's economy is going to be larger than the United States. And indeed, the global accounting firm PricewaterhouseCooper has projected by the end of this decade, in 2030, China's economy will be $38 trillion. It'll be 50% larger than the American economy. Now, over the long term, the U.S. and China spend roughly 2 and 3% of their gross domestic product on defense. So if China's economy is 50% long, larger every year, their military grows ever stronger than ours. And let's face the uh, the, the Pentagon has conducted uh, 18 war games over the most likely flashpoint. War gaming, what would happen if the United States and China went to war over Taiwan? And in the Pentagon's own war games, the United States has lost 18 times in a row. Wow. China has very sophisticated anti-missile defenses. They have some of the most sophisticated ballistic missiles in the world. And you may have read that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff just told Congress that China's had a breakthrough in hypersonic missiles. These are missiles that fly from three to 5,000 miles an hour. They can absolutely shred U.S. missile defenses. So China is actually ahead of us. For Americans, this is almost impossible to grasp that China could actually be superior to the United States in a number of critical areas of military technology, but it's happening. So by 2030, 
China is going to supplant the U.S. as the world's great global hegemon. And could we also talk about the new Chinese economy based on this this unprecedented infrastructure project? I mean, China has already had the fastest economic growth in the history of the world. What's the Chinese economy going to look like in 2030? Well, China has a series of five-year plans, and under their current five-year plan, they are going to uh, be the leading power in 10 critical areas of technology, such as aerospace. That's their long-term design, artificial intelligence. They're pouring massive amounts of money into this. So if you combine the, the steel infrastructure that they're laying across the Eurasian landmass, their heavy investment in Africa, Along with their technological innovation, China has all of the components to become the world's economic superpower by around 2030 and to supplant the United States in that role. One of the most interesting arguments you make in your new book, To Govern the World, you point out that even as late as 2015, nearly half of the world's population, three to four billion people, were struggling to survive on little more than $5 a day. But China's infrastructure initiative combined with its strategy for improving the lives of humanity's forgotten millions, is going to give it incredible power in parts of the world that the United States hasn't, has really ignored. The U.S. press coverage of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is the world's largest infrastructure project, the world's largest foreign aid project, it's 10 times the size when corrected for inflation of the Marshall Plan that the U.S., used to rebuild a ravaged Europe after World War II. The U.S. press coverage of this enormous initiative is uniformly negative. They refer to it as debt colonialism. They talk about white elephant projects. They talk about wastage, kickbacks, corruption. When you're spending $1.2 trillion and working with 70 nations of varying differing abilities and infrastructure around the globe, there are going to be troubles, okay? But Johns Hopkins University, did a serious study. They evaluated over a thousand of these Chinese loan projects. They found the debt colonialism charge is false, that most of the projects are reasonably well worn. So this is a very serious project that China is launching at a time when the, uh, the neoliberal world order had written off Africa. We regard Africa as kind of a, a global charity case. Yeah. China regards Africa and has since the mid-1970s as a serious economic partner. China's first major foreign aid project was the Tanzan Railroad, which became a trans-African railroad from Tanzania to Angola across the continent. And they did that, they finished that in 1975. And they've been working with the then liberation movements, now the established governments of the southern half of Africa for, for over half a century. Okay, So they are integrating Europe and Africa into this incredible world island. Every world power over the last 400 years, whether it's the Portuguese, the, the Dutch, the British, the Americans, and now the Chinese in turn, have done one thing in common. All of them have struggled to dominate Eurasia and Africa. And China's doing it two ways. One, they're building that infrastructure across the Eurasian landmass that I discussed, but they're also ringing the coastline of Asia, Africa and Europe with 40 strategic ports. And they already have plans for the melting Arctic to start building ports in the northern part of Europe as well. So the combination of these ports ringing world island of Europe, Asia and Africa and that infrastructure laid down, you know, bringing development, employment and opportunity 
to the forgotten millions of the world is going to be a transformation. And if this works, then commerce and, and power is going to flow towards Beijing as if by natural law. Then climate change, you argue, will cripple China. What will happen there? What specifically are the climate vulnerabilities of China? In China's development program, they have been sponsoring coal-fired electricity, and they're reliant on it as home. So that means that China is, is continuing to release greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. China and the United States between them account for 44% of all the emissions, of all the greenhouse gases, all right? Uh, and uh, China is committed to being, you know, um, uh, carbon neutral by, by 2060. That's way too late. So what's going to happen around 2050, uh, and this is according to sober scientific projections, is the rising seas are going to flood Shanghai. Shanghai, China's most powerful economic engine, a city of 18 million people, including the downtown, is going to be underwater. And the North China Plain, according to a, a, another very sober scientific study supervised by a professor at MIT, uh, they calculated that the North China Plain, which is currently home to 400 million people and is in many ways the heartland of Chinese agriculture and industry, is going to become one of the least, if not the, 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 the least habitable places on the planet. Starting around 2060 or 2070, there are going to be hundreds, literally hundreds of extreme climate emergencies. Moreover, at around 2070, China is going to experience five, at least five incidents of what's called 35 degree wet bulb temperature. Now, what's that? That's when the balance of heat and humidity is such that the human body cannot sweat. And a healthy human being at rest, just sitting, is dead in six hours. <sighs> and the North China Plain, along with Northern India, are going to be these two areas that are going to experience 35 degrees centigrade wet bulb temperature protracted periods. So that means that, that China is going to be afflicted by climate change. And as they're dealing with their coastal cities, basically underwater. Some you can remediate, others you can't. And massive population movement to cope with these uninhabitable areas. China will have to withdraw from the world just as the United States is starting to withdraw today. I think we need to talk a little more about uh, the hundreds of millions of refugees who will be fleeing the effects of climate change towards the more habitable and wealthier nations we're already seeing just the beginnings of this in Western Europe and the United States. You see this as bringing political disaster and social and economic crisis to much of the developed world over the next 30 years. Let's think back to the period between 2016 and 2018. The arrival of refugees in Southern Europe, Africans crossing the Mediterranean, Middle Easterners coming in from Turkey to Greece, and then Central Americans and Mexicans on the U.S. southern border. This produced a surge in vocal uh, right-wing populism, Britain's Brexit, uh, European ultranationalist parties, the election of Donald Trump. And how many people was that? If you add them all up, the Middle Easterners, the Africans, and the Central Americans, two million people, just two million people. By 2050, the World Bank estimates that there will be over 200 million climate change refugees. And the, the estimates are as high in other sources as 1.2 billion, all right? Now, these 
tides of humanity are not going to be moving by choice. The climate change is going to be so severe that these hundreds of millions of people are going to be uprooted from, from vulnerable seashores, floodplains, desert fringes. They're going to be forced to flee, to survive, to that narrow strip of the earth across the northern temperate zone that will remain habitable in the second half of the 20th century, 21st century. The, the world is then going to be faced with a, a very real choice. If we don't develop some kind of form of global governance to deal with this, this tide of humanity, then the world is going to collapse into all kinds of petty, endemic, brutal wars over water and food and habitable area. The alternative is an improved form of global governance with control over three critical areas. First of all, if any nation by 2050 is still emitting, then they would be compelled by a, a, a more sovereign global governance to shift to alternative energy. Uh, second, uh, the resettlement of these hundreds of millions of climate change refugees would not be a choice. There would have to be an empowered person, sort of like an empowered UN High Commissioner for Refugees that could simply assign refugees to specific countries that have space and resources. And third and finally, and this is something that's been much talked about at the Glasgow Climate Conference, there needs to be a systematic transfer of resources for climate change remediation and for hunger relief in the tropical and, and desert areas that are going to be hammered particularly hard by climate change. And this is going to require if, you know, a, a, a yielding of a portion of national sovereignty as we now see it and a reorganization of the UN into a more empowered and also a more equitable organization. You end your new book, To Govern the Globe, with an apology. I'm not sure I've ever seen that before. Tell us about that. My generation has been profligate. You know, we enjoyed America's absolutely unprecedented prosperity. Uh, we bought motor vehicles, we drove, we heated our homes with fossil fuels. We didn't take the growing warnings from Rio and Kyoto and Paris seriously. Well, until just now, until California erupted in fire last summer. And so we've left a, a terrible legacy for the young people. And the dates we've been talking about, okay, 2050 is one of the dates we've been talking about. Well, I'm going to be gone. But my students, the 18 and 19-year-olds in my classrooms, you know, they're going to be in middle age. They're going to have children, and they're going to be trying to deal with this world that we've left them. And Certainly, they're going to reach old age at 2080, 2090, uh, if they're so lucky. And the, the, if the UN Secretary General in his 2019 statement is correct, that the world might have actually 3.9 degrees centigrade global warming by 2100, that is going to be a, a very terrible legacy that we've left our, our, our grandchildren. And we all want an apology. Alfred McCoy's new book is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. You can read excerpts at Tom Dispatch and at thenation.com. Al, thanks for thinking big, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much for having me on, on the program.
It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about mutual aid and racial justice, and about making masks during the pandemic. For that, we turn to Christina Wong. She's a performance artist, comedian, and writer. She's performed across America, in the UK, Hong Kong, and Africa. She's been a guest on late-night shows on NBC, FX, and Comedy Central. Her commentaries have appeared on Marketplace, PBS, Vice, in Jezebel, in Playgirl magazine, the Huffington Post, and CNN. She's also an elected official in Los Angeles, a representative on a neighborhood council. But her greatest work is the Anti-Sewing Squad. And that's the subject of the new book she's edited. It's called The Anti-Sewing Squad Guide to Mask-Making, Radical Care, and Racial Justice. It's co-edited by Mei-Lin K. Hong, Chrissy Lee Lau, and Priti Sharma. Christina recently finished doing an off-Broadway show. It's called Christina Wong Sweatshop Overlord. It ran at the New York Theater Workshop in November. Now she's back home in L.A. Christina Wong, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. We've never interviewed a sweatshop overlord before. How did you get to be one? Oh, this story. Yeah, I, I didn't know that I had that destiny in me. Basically, March 20, 2020, uh, I was sitting at home when I was supposed to be getting ready for a tour that had been canceled. Uh, I was deemed non-essential, as most artists were. And I sew my set and prop pieces. I ended up, you know, just kind of down and out like, man, I'm <laughs> I'm unessential. And I was like, wait, I, I can sew masks. And no one knew where to get masks. It was a completely foreign, weird thing to wear something over your face. We forget this, how quickly our realities have shifted. Um, I actually wasn't wearing a mask because uh, I, I didn't want to make myself further target as an Asian woman in in the streets of America, like I was, everyone was already sort of angry at all things Asian for bringing, for quote unquote, bringing the virus here. That's not, that's not necessarily who's at fault, right? For this. And I sewed a mask on my Hello Kitty sewing machine, made a naive offer. Uh, if you need a mask, I'll make you one. Um, was inundated overnight, not realizing everyone needed a mask. And and I uh, got some very scary messages from nurses, from frontline workers, from people with elders. Like, And it felt like playing God every day because it was not like I had infinite amounts of time or that sewing is a very fast thing for me. Uh, but I was like, I need to get some help and recruit some people to, to help sew. Four days later, I created a casual, what was supposed to be a casual Facebook group called the Anti-Sewing Squad on and it, you know, it was a Facebook group, basically. And it, I, the first volunteers were mostly Asian women. And I, the, for me, the great irony is a lot of our mothers and grandmothers did garment work as a rite of passage to America. And suddenly we're, we're doing that work again for free. Many of us are college educated. It's not that we're above it, but it was like we never thought that we'd have to return to this work for any sort of survival in this way. And, and getting materials for... Um, <laughs> for these masks was nearly impossible when everything had shut down and we weren't prepared for a home sewing movement as a, as a country. But I looked around at all these sort of Asian aunties I was commanding around and I went, oh my God, I'm running a modern day Asian pandemic sweatshop. You use the term sweatshop, not just as a joke. Yeah, no, for me, it's very political to use it. And I have actually done projects uh, in support of labor, laborers who work in the garment industry. And so I am aware of like, 
their situation is very dire, very serious, and their demands for living wages I don't want to cheapen that by 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 tossing around the term sweatshop, but it felt very clear in the 17 months that we were sewing masks, 17 months, <laughs> that there was a complete systemic failure in this country to provide the most vulnerable of Americans this basic form of protection or even to advocate that it was useful. We saw that some governors lifted mask mandates. We saw the former former president yeah, <laughs> say that he wasn't going to wear a mask. It's a choice, right? And, and this sort of set this precedent that, that masks maybe didn't work, maybe were uh, about impending on your freedom. And, and for us, we felt like our work was being undermined. And it was I did not go into this thinking this. I thought this was the least political thing I'd ever done in my life to, to make masks for my fellow Americans. And of course, like everything I end up doing, it ends up becoming this <laughs> I end up stepping into this complete culture war by accident. But for me, using the term sweatshop was really about pointing to how difficult this work was on our bodies, how unpaid it was, how, how stressful this was, and not to romanticize it by saying, oh, we're volunteers and we're, we're do-gooders. We just have this time to help you. Because when you look at who these aunties were in our group, which was by the end, about 800 aunties had come through our group across 33 states. 800 in 33 states. And may I just ask, how many masks did you make? 350,000. 350,000 masks. They were all given to vulnerable. Well, originally it was for frontline workers and medical workers. And then it became very clear, wait, there are tons of, if, if these are the people who can find us easily through social media, who are the people who cannot? Because they probably need this even more than people who get salaries working at a hospital, Right. And so that's where we began to pivot is sending to farm workers, indigenous communities, migrants at the border, uh, unhoused communities, sex workers, incarcerated communities, right? So this is this is where this all shifted. And, and for me, it was like, I, I, I just found myself just so confounded at how ridiculous some of these requests were getting, not ridiculous, like the people who needed them were terrible people, but just how broken the systems. At one point, a social worker with a with a government email address was asking us for masks. And I was just like, ah. and she actually sent her son in LA to help pick up stuff. <laughs> she lived like she lived like 350 miles away, you know? And and like I'm like stuffing her son's Honda Civic with hand sanitizer and things. I'm like, I'm like, how did this happen? How did we get there? So, so for me, it's not to um, make light of what we're doing, but to really point to how difficult this work is. But, but I also, I feel like there's a certain ownership I can have over it as, as an Asian American woman whose ancestors did this sort of work as a rite of passage. And it, and it is now in a, in this terribly, horribly ancestral faded way I'm doing it again because the country has not prepared us. This gold mountain, this country that we came to to be free has created this other kind of situation for us. The term anti means something specific too, not just the sister of a parent. No. So yeah, I anti, I, I, I hear it more in like Hawaii diaspora communities in, in Hawaii. If you've ever gone like elder women who are not necessarily related to you are called auntie, but also my friend's kids call me auntie, which I find so sweet. And as someone who didn't have 
children. I haven't had children. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it does, it is it's so endearing to be called that. And um, basically a neighbor had sort of given me the idea. My neighbor was helping me cut fabric early on before I created the group. And it was like, yeah, lots of aunties right now are being deployed to do this work. And I just really love this image that it's not soldiers with guns fighting this war, but <laughs> unassuming, like <laughs> very sweet ladies behind sewing machines are, are, are doing this war, or this, this, sorry, doing this, well, we were fighting this war by by trying to send our protection where it was most needed, and um, and I think that that was sort of the, the the secret gift of our group. Is there something when you ask, when you address everyone as aunties, who can help make these masks? Versus, hey, volunteers, who can help make this? Like it, it's is this instant um, family sort of semi cult situation? We joke that we're cult sometimes, but. <laughs> But but there's this sort of sense that you belong, right? And that you are loved and revered. And it's it's a very different kind of way to address and and relate to the group when you refer to someone as an auntie. So that has been the sort of gift of our name. And you say the work the aunties are doing is traditional women's work, but you say the aunties embody some intriguing social possibilities. There was something very charming about like these aunties who, you know, when you walk down the street, you imagine like, and you see tons of different people. The auntie is not the person you imagine being the toughest, biggest, baddest ass (laughs) warrior. But that is sort of what this moment revealed for us. And we had all sorts of aunties in a group, not just sewing aunties. We had haggle aunties. We had Rebecca Solnit is our writer, historian, shakedown auntie. So she would basically <laughs> shake down her following when we needed you know, money so that we could fill a van full of stuff to the Navajo Nation. Uh, uh, we, <laughs> we had spreadsheet aunties and elastic hub aunties and, and care aunties and driving aunties. And, um, you know, I wanted to ask about a couple of those. This is from a chart called the taxonomy of auntie roles. You also have the OG auntie. OG auntie. Yeah, those are the aunties I pulled out from the beginning who'd been there from from the very top of it and sort of witnessed it all unfold and and would have to sort of uh, help onboard all these. We call them little duckling aunties because every time we we, during the few months in, we'd get the Washington Post would do a story. CNN would do a story and like, boom, here comes all these requests to join us. And and then thus all the confusion. Right. Like how do like it's not like just like, yay, more people here. Like someone needs to sort of show them how we work and how to work within this framework of this like group that we were just sort of building as we went. And and part of your framework, you say, was that you emphasized that what you were doing is solidarity, not charity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's super important and it was definitely not capitalism, but, but very much we worked, um, we, we cooperated and worked with, uh, the needs of these communities um, and the organizers who have been doing the work before, during, and after this pandemic. And, and rather than treat them as helpless, like recognize they're not helpless. They're actually incredible communities that they've just system, systemically bear the brunt of racism and, you know, environmental trauma and all these sort of things that, that have put them in a position where there's no running water or there's, 
so much poverty on this nation. And, and also like, and, and I'm thinking about communities like the Navajo nation, right. This very resilient community that, that has created all this mutual aid within their own nation, but only have 13 grocery stores across three States serving 300,000 people. That's not okay. Um, so, so trying to understand what their needs are, what we have access to and how can we quickly support them and get stuff to them. And, and you had a project specifically to aid the Navajo Nation. We had a few for a few different communities, but yes, um, we originally befriended their seamstress group. It was a group of Navajo and Hopi seamstresses, and they were they were usually they're very ingenuous. Is that the word? John, ingenious. Right. Ingenious. <laughs> but they were using because you know they're not near a fabric store. Plus, everything was shut down. They were using fitted sheets and using the elastic from the fitted sheets and sewing that into these medical gowns, right? These hospital gowns. And we were like looking at where we were in LA and going, we could, and we're looking at a map. This was like 40 days into this. And we were like, we could find someone to do, to, to do a round trip, a very long round trip in one day. Because remember, we were trying to minimize contact. This yeah. was just a year ago. And yet I have to remind you of these little details about yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so that was the first of, of what became eight van loads over of, of, materials and stuff was was just trying to get them sewing materials for the seamstresses to sew up into masks and distribute locally and just pulling that stuff from what stores we could get opened in the in the garment district getting it over and then soon we began to talk to them more because some of those organizers were also part of like uh food boxes that were being distributed because people couldn't leave their homes and People are very far from food sources and, and there was needs for refrigeration and tents for people to quarantine and, and uh, coolers and uh, hygiene supplies. And so we um, tried to support them by getting that over there. So on the one hand, we have the anti-sewing circle, mostly Asian-American women. The opposite of the anti-sewing circle Rebecca Solnit uh, wrote in The Guardian, the opposite of its model of mutual aid and solidarity, she said, could be found in the white men who saw wearing masks as somehow compromising a masculinity that they defined as a lack of obligation to others, close quote. I know. I, it's just so, it's so weird that it got so polarizing. It didn't feel like that was, I actually had really thought that this moment of the pandemic was going to be our moment for humanity to come together, to move past our differences and recognize that we have to, you know, breathe. We, we all, we're so intertwined, but oops, we, that, that ship sailed way past us. And it just became, we are just now in like a deeper divide as a country, but yeah, as, as aunties too, we witnessed this and it's frustrating when you spend all this extra time that you could be spending taking care of your families or your homes or earning income to make masks for others and then witness people burn masks or tell you your stuff is worthless or it's 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 so angering and but also just completely unnecessary and complete disinformation and so that sort of made us uh, our community stronger we, we i had always i had never really understood when people said sewing is political, now I'm like, yep, sewing is completely political. And, and when you look at like who is doing this labor, who benefits from it and how visible is our, you know, is our labor and all this and how respected and valued is it? That These were all things that 
we had to keep thinking about how to communicate to the world. Like we know that you're used to, and this is me in the voice of me screaming in a megaphone to the world. We know you're used to just pressing a few buttons and then something arrives uh, on your doorstep from Amazon. But in this moment, these masks don't exist. So, so you getting these masks from me, you really have to think hard about how many do you actually need? How many can you actually distribute? These can't be extra and fun little things. Just about out of time. Is there anything else we haven't covered here that you would like to cover? No, well, I would love to make a plug for if you couldn't make it off Broadway to Christina Wong's Sweatshop Overlord New York Theater Workshop is streaming the show until December 14th. And then it and then it just sort of disappears. Um, you can also purchase our book, uh, which I think is a great testament to this time, the Auntie Sewing Squad book. And it has contributions from dozens of aunties. Uh, a lot of them I'm slowly meeting as I do the show or as they come through town. I, I feel like the one gift of this time is that I found a family in the pandemic that I didn't have before. And I'm at least grateful to witness generosity in the way that I have through these aunties. And I, I hope to share that with others. Christina Wong. She went from being an unemployed performance artist to a sweatshop overlord in just 10 days. Her new book tells the story of how she learned to exploit unpaid manual labor and be lauded as a hero. I wrote the that. <laughs> I did write that sentence. <laughs> the book. The book, once again, is The Anti-Sewing Squad Guide to Mask-Making, Radical Care, and Racial Justice. Gia Tolentino calls the book a wonderful, motley, no-BS history of a singular and beautiful mutual aid project. Christina, thank you for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Take care. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.